we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Lisa Brenner, letting you know that my new film, Say My Name, will be available in selected theaters and on demand starting June 14th. It's a madcap British comedy about love, one night stands, and criminals who shoot themselves in the leg. To find out more, go to the Say My Name Movie Facebook page or simply search the hashtag Say My Name Movie on whatever social media you use, and you might just see me in a sex scene. That's all I'm saying. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by Jodorowsky's Dune producer Steve Scarlatta and Josh Miller, where they explore some of the greatest movies that were never made, from E.T. 2 to Tim Burton's Superman, Night Skies to Star Trek The Academy Years. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new sci-fi TV series, Pandora, debuting on The CW and around the world on July 9th, starring Priscilla Quintana and Oliver Dench, and you can find out more by downloading the Unboxing Pandora podcast, available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Get ready to join the Inglorious Trexperts live at San Diego Comic-Con as they boldly go to the greatest Comic-Con on Earth. We'll be there, will you? Meet all your favorite and least favorite Inglorious Trexperts hosts as they talk Trek live and in person, only at San Diego Comic-Con. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And I'm really excited about today's episode. We got some great guests. It is time is the fire in which we burn, <laughs> revisiting burn generations. Baby, burn. burn baby. That's a whole different show. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I'm thrilled. Ashley Miller is back. You know Ooh. him as the writer of Thor and X-Men First Class and um, an, a regular Trexpert. Irregular. It doesn't really have anything to do with his... Um, Fiber intake. Yeah. <laughs> um, he is a, a frequent guest, although they're not here every week. We're thrilled to have him back. And we're particularly delighted to have with us the uh, w- one half of the writing team behind the uh, Star Trek Generations. But long before uh, he started doing features, he was uh, a, a writer-producer on Star Trek The Next Generation, went on to show run uh, Voyager, create Enterprise, and run that show. Um, and, of course, uh, did a number of feature films, including Mission Impossible 2, and is currently the executive producer on the Orville, and also an executive producer and director on Cosmos, which is coming uh, back to TV this summer for a second season, which is really exciting as well. Um, the first uh, year was fantastic, and uh, I can't wait to watch the second year. So welcome, Brandon Braga. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I know. I mean, your filmography, I just keep going. Also, and, and also, we're out of time. You should mention that we've been friends for 25 years. We have been. Even and, after I reviewed Generations, oh, well, I was, we stayed uh, friends. I was, a, I was a, honestly, I... I I apologize. I was an asshole. About, uh, no, about, you, that's not. Uh, that's uh, not actually not true. By um, the way, I just I didn't want to get into that because this show is about extolling what we like. <laughs> and besides, as opposed, so was Mark. So right? <laughs> it's all yeah. good. As opposed to being negative. <laughs> no, but, it's not negative. I just I, I I'm really happy to be here, oh. and and I'm happy that we've remained friends for so long. Well, I, I as well. <laughs> and uh, I'm thrilled that you know you you, you know you've been such a, a, a you know a friend and a supporter of my work. You know when I was doing the book, I mean you just spent all that time talking to Ed and sharing all these candid thoughts about oh. your experience. And well, you, I mean, 
you kind of invented the capsule television review uh, genre. I mean, in Cinefantastique, we uh, when ne- when we were doing Next Generation, we would wait for that issue to come out, where you would do this whole a whole season with mm-hmm. cap with a little synopsis sure. and then a little critique. I certainly had never seen the closest I had ever seen anyone do that was uh, the Twilight Zone Companion, mm-hmm. right, right? Which was a book that I'm sure. You, we all had we it. We all it's had the Creed book, yeah. You know, sure. So, I think you you had a significant, you know, influence on, on the show at times in terms of, uh, you know, your opinion. Well, you know, I'm lucky because when no one else was doing it, and you know, now I look back at it and I feel like a prick for half the stuff I said, but um, <laughs> but you know, the thing is that. Um, you know, it was pre-internet. I mean, we're dating ourselves, but it was pre-internet. So no one was sort of looking at this stuff with any kind of critical acumen. It was all very, you know. And, but you, it was it was a, a crit, it was film criticism. It was critique. You took it seriously. You took the subject matter seriously. Yeah. No. And I'm I'm occasionally I'll glance back at this. I'm very you know proud of the work uh, you know from back then. And as you said, treating the show very seriously because it really was. We lived the world we lived in. We still do. It was like local newscasting. Hey, we beamed onto the set of Star Trek, and you know it left us beaming. You know, and it, we were so energized about it. And you know, I really hated that kind of way of covering Star Trek, and um, wanted to, you know, as you said, take it more seriously. And uh, my Trek scholarship over the years. You mean you never said that. Trek is back at Warp Factor 5. No, I never, never, never said, said that. that. Although they would always put that on the cover, like zooming to yeah. a fifth season. And I'm like, who's writing these freaking cover lines? It's so <laughs> cheesy. But um, but but the writing was good. So, um, But thank you. And, and uh, you know, I, I really respect how um, over the years, you know, where a lot of people have moved away from Star Trek or don't want to talk about it. Or, you know, you... Right, you know, have looked back and been very honest about your tenure on Star Trek, both, you know, the highlights and the lowlights. And, and, and I think it's great because, I mean, you did the wonderful interview on the, uh, the Blu-rays uh, talking about um, Enterprise and, and Next Generation. And um, I thought, you know, those were terrific. And, um, uh, you, you know, you've always been very accessible. And it, I think we talked about this. We talked about this once. Um, it goes back to, I think, when in Sci-Fi Universe... Uh, we did that article, uh, which you were so game to be a part of, is, is Brandon Braga evil? Because remember, you were getting all the shit yeah. at the time, and you 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 played into that whole um, uh, bad idea, boy bad boy of, image yeah. with the, with the smoking yeah. jacket and the. I mean, it was, and I still remember that. To, and this is you know thirty freaking years ago to date us a little bit, but uh, it was hysterical. Yeah, and, we were. Yeah, we. It was probably a stupid thing to do uh, uh, from a P, a P, You say a, that now in hindsight. P, PR perspective, but, you know, I was young and enjoyed the attention and uh, and thought it would be fun. But, in, you know, in retrospect, I think a lot of people... Well, it kind of started with a comment I made uh, that I had never been a fan of the show. I mean, just had never really wa- sat down and watched it. Uh, and said that in an interview and a lot of fans seized upon that as a sacrilegious statement when in fact I think it was a good thing I mean of course after 15 years on the show I would become a huge fan of the show and um, but I think that's kind of where where the a lot of the hate started well, what's, <laughs> what's interesting is that people feel such a sense of propriety and it's interesting I'm sure from the outside looking in to see you know, now with the new showrunners and uh, new shows, just how vitriolic people can be, whether you like the show or not, and we know how we kind of feel about it, uh, but still, uh, you know, there's a complete lack of respect for people who do this. Because right. even the worst episodes, you didn't go and say, we're going to make a terrible episode this week, you no. know? Uh, no, not at all. Um, in fact, I just it's worth noting that when I was uh, starting from grades from grade school through middle school through high school there were the horror nerds which was with me there were the the dungeons and dragons fantasy nerds and there were the star trek nerds who were reading the novels and and we all thought the others were nerds but we weren't so i was aware of star trek but i was just like they're nerds yeah (laughs) (laughs) right we're reading fango we're cool (laughs) right yeah uh but uh yeah, I mean it's it, it, especially with the advent of the internet, uh, you could the criticism was coming 
the day after, and now it comes while the while episodes are airing. I yeah, mean, it's, how it's, crazy it's is real that? Time. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, but it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you don't kind of make content to be consumed on the fly where people are literally tweeting their thoughts scene well, by scene, line by line. Let's be honest. You know, when they put out a teaser of something and people start screaming at the font use, that becomes a little bit crazy. Although, although but they have a point, I, I, but it's... Yeah, well, I well look, if you know, when I start speaking of Star Trek, my my biggest quibble... Uh, with the first episode was I didn't like the font they used for the Klingon subtitles. Mm. I, I just, it didn't seem like the right font. Right, I can, right. I But that's even, actually in the show. I can't and that's, quite, that's, well, that's valid. Oh, you're talking about advert. I, I was talking about ads. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, no, Which that's is crazy. Yeah, wacky. That's, that's wacky. Yeah. <laughs> you're talking about like, papyrus. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. They're turning Nazis. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, right. We, we should do a, a show on the fonts of Star Trek. Right. You know? We would be the four people that have any interest in <laughs> I think that there could be a, a germ of interest in there. A germ of yes. interest. I mean, I, I find it fascinating. You ever see that Silent Life skit where they, they parodied the whole Avatar use of papyrus? Oh, absolutely. It's so brilliant. The papyrus font oh, it's that so is funny. stock on every you know, Mac that you Ryan Gosling, he can't sleep at night. He's having nightmares because James Cameron made the most expensive, most successful movie of all time, yet he used papyrus for the one sheet. It's hysterical. <laughs> and it's so, it's so true. Because, I mean, that's been a pet peeve of mine with a lot of Star Trek too. It's like some of the font, uh, not Star Trek two, but Star Trek also as well, has yeah. used well. some awesome Awful font choices. Anyway, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> fonts you know, of Star Trek. Like, I got next on Inglorious <laughs> Trexperts. You know, it, it's it's funny. And we're all I, looking I, at the font of your podcast right now. I, I, well, yes. Darren designed it. I think it looks <laughs> great. Yeah, so um, I want to. Uh, you know, I wasn't even going to ask you this because I, I want to talk about generations. But I, I, I'd be remiss because I have you here not to ask you this question. But when you saw Endgame, I assume you saw Avengers Endgame. Yes, I did. I mean, and Kevin Feige has talked a lot about the fact that he's a big Next Generation fan, particularly of All Good Things. I mean, did you see a lot of All Good Things in that movie? I mean, because I did, and I don't say that as a criticism. I just, I thought it was very flattering as an um, homage. Wow. I hadn't considered that. Um, how do you mean? I mean, because they went in the, the past? Well, I think it's not only that they went in the past, but that you're seeing scenes as they transpired from another perspective, this sort of Rashomon of recreating the beginning at the end, yeah. and then using that to change something and in all, yeah, the future. I, I suppose so. And the novelty of getting to see some of the characters in earlier incarnations, right. when, you know, as opposed to what they're going through now. I, I did not, I loved the movie. I had a blast. Never made that connection. Just, I, I really didn't. I did, um, I was amused that they referenced a bunch of time travel movies. Yeah. And, of course, their time travel was essentially very similar to other time travel. I don't know that they took it to some other level, but they had fun with it. You know, but that's weird, Mark. I I don't. <laughs> well, if you didn't see it, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I no arbitration there. I, I okay. I mean, it's and and by the way, it's. I think Damon Lindelhoff paid homage to that episode in um, Lost. There was some famous episode that he openly mm. says mm. was influenced by that show. It's just, I mean, it's great. I'm happy, but I think because I. That for me, that was kind of inspired by Slaughterhouse Five. Sure, sure, you know, it's not like I made it, made it up out of thin air. You know, I was inspired by something too. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, we build on the on the shoulders of giants in yeah. a sense. But I, I, you know, Kevin has been very open. I mean, there's that great Hollywood Reporter interview he gave where he just gushes about Star Trek, and it must be nice for you guys because obviously when you started on. Star Trek very early on, it didn't get the kind of respect it does now in retrospect. I mean, it's even when they announced this Picard show. I mean, you'd think that, you know, Eisenhower had died or something. I mean, the amount of news coverage it was getting, yeah. you know, in major, uh, you know, outlets and broadcasts and all over the internet, it was like this huge thing that uh, Patrick, you know, was coming back to play Picard again. And, um, you know, anybody who's seen the teaser, you know, can see the, you know, influence of all good things all over that. But, um, but let's talk about... Um, you know, and I, I know you've talked about this movie ad nauseum, so I don't want to go over the same uh, things that we've talked about in the past. I, I wonder from a personal perspective. I mean, you start as an intern. You're working on Next Generation. You worked your way up to become 
you know, a key, key member of the creative team. You, you, you end up writing the season finale, and now uh, you're asked, you know, a year before you finish on Star Trek Next Generation Season 7 to write this feature film, which is a huge thing, huge budget Paramount movie. You end up working with John Alonzo, who shot Chinatown. I, I mean, know, it must be amazing. an extraordinary thing from a personal perspective to find yourself... Uh, you know, and you know, what, 27, 28, yep, uh, you know, in this, in this, in this situation. I wonder if you can tell us, you know, sort of personally what it was like for you at that point. Um, it was great. You know, uh, I, it was, I just couldn't believe it was happening. Um, I, I, my, when I got it, my aspirations were to be, to do movies. Um, television was just not something I thought about very much. I'm really glad my career ended up in TV. And, of course, TV has become something completely different than when I first started in 1990. Um, You know, ER was fairly new and on the air. But, you know, those kind of shows were rare. But I I was thrilled. I mean, it was... It was hard to catch your breath back then because we were doing 26 episodes a year. And the writing staff was never huge. At that time, it was Michael Piller, Jerry Taylor, Ron, me, maybe Renee Shavria. I can't. He might have moved in TF Space Nine. It was a it was a skeleton crew, right? Um, I think maybe Noreen Shankar. Noreen, right? Um, Joe yeah. Manoski, I think, had left. He wasn't there. He was always coming and going, coming Joe. And going. <laughs> but so it was a very small staff. Um, but being asked to do the movie w- was a huge deal. Now. I think enough time has passed, and I think I may have talked before. There were two... The the concept back then was to develop two scripts concurrently. And Maurice Hurley, who, you you know, ran Next Generation... During the late first uh, season and then all of second season and then left. Right. Um, He was developing a script. And um, so... And that was normal practice back then. I don't know if it is now, but... We didn't care. Ron, Ron and I were just happy to be doing this movie. And um, our, our, I don't know what happened to Maurice's script or if, if he even finished it. I'm not sure. I never read it. But uh, we were we were. Thrilled. I have, and it's not very good. Okay, well, <laughs> ours wasn't either, so uh, <laughs> it, it, it got better as it went. Um, but uh, it was it was really exciting, you know. And Ron and I were young. We were really clicking as a team and and uh it didn't feel like work it was kind of it just kind of and then there was the finale i don't know how we ended up doing that as well it's probably not a prudent choice to pick us to do that too but things were just in motion and it just happened that way well I, you know like i gotta say I, you're being extremely self-deprecating about the whole thing first of all you talk about how did you end up getting uh the finale which when people inevitably do these lists of the greatest finales of all time, the ones that stuck the landing, and they're very few, inevitably, you know, All Good Things is on that list, along with Breaking Bad, and, you know, and then they go on the litany of complaints about Lost and, you know, I mean, and everything else. So clearly that has stood the test of time. Um, and, uh, but, you know, in terms of the movie, one thing I'd like you to talk about, because you, you talk about, you know, not being in retrospect entirely satisfied. What a lot of people don't understand is you had an incredible degree of autonomy on the TV series. There really wasn't a studio. It was the, the, the network, the studio were the same thing. It was Paramount um, in first-run syndications. You weren't, you know, Rick protected you to the extent that, you know, if he didn't want to do a note, the note usually didn't get done from, you know. Oh, and, yeah, that's and, true. And, and so suddenly you're thrust into a world now completely different, you know, and all eyes are on this. They, they, they want to start a new franchise. So you got Sherry Lansing, you got Don Granger, who's your executive on it. You got all these eyes on it suddenly. A lot of people who know nothing about Star Trek giving you a ton of notes. And the actors right. are suddenly empowered because now you got to listen to them. Mm-hmm. which uh, Especially it, two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, yep. and that changed Star Trek uh, franchise forever, and I think doomed the movie series, in my opinion. But uh, but can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you to suddenly going from sort of following your muse to a certain extent to to, to chafing under the uh, sort of uh, studio system in terms of writing your first movie? Because it was very different for you on First Contact, and we can talk about that, but Generations was definitely yeah. by committee. Well, Ashley, you know what it's like to work on movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, especially big-budget movies. 
there are a lot of it's it's just a different experience. Yeah, there are a lot of things to balance that are just not in your control. Yeah, and t- and TV being a writer's medium, even back then, yeah, it's a really good point. Like nobody was giving us notes. Rick Berman was the guy giving us notes. You know, I don't remember getting any note. If if any notes were coming from the studio, it was going through Rick on Generations. Um, you know, I've I've told the story many times. In my mind, and I, I think in Ron's mind, you'd have to ask Ron more. Um, we just had this image of the two enterprises, Picard and Kirk's locked in battle, and like, mm-hmm. you know, Kirk versus Picard. The, the conversation back then, at you know, at times was who's the better captain, um, and we just envisioned something a little more uh, aggressive, mm-hmm. uh, but you, we did, we had. Rick and the studio. Shatner, want, I think, wanted to die in the picture. You know, what better way to take over the movie than to be a main character who dies? But we were all for it, you know, f- for whatever reason. Um, and then, of course, it's Patrick. It's, you know, it's his movie too, kind of. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not sure what was going through his mind, but he had a lot of you know, opinions and wanted it to be really char- character based and, you know, and, um, and it was just juggling a lot of stuff. It was, you know, the director, David Carson, really didn't have a lot of input, as I recall. Um, the, f- the draft of the script was sent to Leonard Nimoy by Rick, mm-hmm. and Nimoy ended up turning it down. They were good friends and because he uh, Nimoy and I think kind of somewhat astutely wanted thought the best thing about the script was the was the data mm. story and he and I'm getting this secondhand from Rick uh, sure. but he he felt that you need to lean into that story far more. Like that was the only storyline that kind of really interested him, and so he, so that wasn't going to happen. Right. And um, so yeah, it was just a lot of meetings with Patrick, with Shatner, with uh, and you know I re- I remember at one point a meeting with Shatner where he made had some suggestion and I kind of questioned it respectfully and he used the Kirk voice on me like I like I was a young ensign or something and that was it for me you know, no more no more comments for me <laughs> and uh, things would change drastically on first contact like the all, all that that com- complex stuff went went away right and I think the movie benefited from it I'm not sure I'm answering your question but it, it was but it was still exciting. It was still exciting. And it was, you know, it was also written over a longer span of time. It's not like we were writing the movie in the finale. We were writing them concurrently, but we had been writing the movie for a long time. It sounds like um, with David Carson, essentially, at least the, the way that I'm hearing it, and fulfilling the same sort of role he would have fulfilled on an episode. Um, you know, he preps it, he shoots it, you know, he, he manages and drives the ship. Um, that Generations was far more a producer-driven movie? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, I'm going to just use an analogy that you can tell me whether it's apt. Is It was probably more like a Marvel movie in, mm-hmm. in that um, the powers that be were dip, it was not a director's movie. It, right. it, I mean, Carson's role was really important. But the big decisions, uh, whether what the all the, from visual effects to final cut to the to the script, that was that was more like Marvel. Right, the, or, the vision or, was coming from above. It, yeah, it's coming from Rick Berman, and to some extent, some minor extent, Ron and I. It, so yes, that's that's kind of how it was how it went. Yeah, I mean, Star Trek has never been traditionally an auteurist franchise. I mean, until, I mean, you could argue, I guess, the J.J. films are, uh, you know, I guess someone could make that case. But, um, you know, until then, you know, the director was always 
in many ways a glorified traffic cop. Like, right. you know. but the best, but the best directors elevated the material. Absolutely, so David Carson, who did most famously Yesterday's Enterprise, he was considered to be our uh, our best director at the time. Uh, Jonathan Frakes was also really uh, we really liked Jonathan Frakes and uh, a guy named Jim Jim Conway. Um, but and Carson and Rick was Colby the, also and Rick Colby, but Carson was uh, was the guy. But that that was Rick's decision. And they ended up bumping heads a lot, uh, David and Rick. Yeah, and you'd have to ask him because I I was on the set maybe half the time. Sure. Um, but on the boat I was seasick, and in the mountains I was altitude sick, so. I wasn't always pre- <laughs> mentally present. Never get on the boat. <laughs> uh, but, but um, yeah, from what I understand, Carson kind of uh, went David Lean on Rick. And yeah. th- that's all I really heard. Sure. Uh, I, I understand the budget. No problem. I know what I got to work with. You got it. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I By need the way, this. I, I don't that. even remember what the budget was. Do you? Do you guys? 30-something? 32, I think, yeah, if I remember. Right. So back, that's not bad for back then. It's not the biggest right. budget. No. But, but a, a big chunk was going to certain yes, avenues. Yes, line, yeah. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. You know, between the cast and yeah. then. The, ca- the cast was paid a lot. Yeah, right. yeah. It's, it's true. Not to the writers, clearly. <laughs> But uh, Not, your, your quote wasn't up quote, there yet. W- well, yeah, there was no quote. Uh, <laughs> we were just happy to be there. So, um, oh, but you, thank you. <laughs> you've, you've mentioned many times that you're, you weren't completely satisfied with how it turned out. At what point did you start to feel it turning away from your concept? For me personally, concept? Mm-hmm. when we were suddenly writing a, a scene of Kirk and Picard scrambling eggs, um. I'm like, I might as well make it my mom's recipe. So I threw some dillweed in there. <laughs> That's the most excited I could get about it. Uh, I I just was I wasn't sure what. I mean, the concept of the nexus was kind of interesting, but it, it I, you know it, it was just I just have these memories of the Christmas Carol and. Somebody, I don't know if it was Patrick talking about his family and right. and kind of like what he. I mean, it, it, it was the heart. It was it, its heart was in the right place. Like you know, Picard never had a family. Mm-hmm. Um, he sacrificed that part of right. of his life to be a captain. And and Kirk, I'm not sure exactly what Kirk's arc was. It, something about making a difference. Mm, right. I just wasn't clear what exactly the movie was about right. at that point. Um, I, I understood the teaser. Mm-hmm. The, the, I kind of liked that. Yeah. Um, but once the two captains got together is where I think most people would say that the movie just kind of, you know, became a little... Uh, it, its center shifted to some place I, that I, isn't... Yeah. yeah. Now, by the way, there are people who have said to me Generations was... A hugely influential movie, and their favorite Star Trek movie. It, it was yeah. their Star Trek movie, yeah. yep. and we all have like my first Star Trek movie was Khan, sure, and my second one was was Voyage Home, right? Those, and I think those are the two best Star Trek movies. Right, right. Now, are are they? Yes, of course they are. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just. But that's yeah, my we opinion. we've had this discussion many times on on the podcast that um, everyone has a different view of it and and a different starting point and we all tend to uh embrace that which brought us into the family and the, the nostalgia can't be discounted as a big right. influence absolutely absolutely but that's where the the move you know the movie kind of and you know there were and there were reshoots you know the movie we tested the movie and people liked it but they didn't like the end and they didn't like the way Kirk died and how does that feel for you I mean here you make a movie and I assume at the time you know th- there's the excitement of you know you just been your first feature everyone's telling you it's great you go in to test it and then all of a sudden the numbers come back and they're not stellar and suddenly the studio's like we got to reshoot the ending yeah well I-, I was this it was all so new to me that I was just kind of taking it in, you know. Um, I'd been part of test audiences in the in the past. Um, I was in the test audience for the Cronenberg's The Fly, mm-hmm. and there was stuff in there that they took out. Right. It was because it was too gr- gross. 
so I was happy to have seen that version. <laughs> um, and I so, but I'd never, you know, done a movie. Um, I wasn't surprised at the ending. Um, I certainly didn't know how to fix it. Um, Did you have that feeling in your gut? Like it just wasn't working and you were waiting for the other shoe to drop or when you well, saw we, it together? It, you know, it was purposely anticlimactic. Mm. And I don't remember. There was there was a cinematic reference Ron and I had, had watched. It might have been a John Wayne movie where he was shot in the back. Mm-hmm. And we thought underplaying the death. Right. Um, n- not making it grandiose would, would have some... Uh, it would be kind of shocking and unexpected, but it just was flat as a pancake, and people hated it. And the solution was to make the whole sequence much more inten- grand. And, right. and un- I've, I've said it a million times. Kirk should have died on the bridge, yep. not under a bridge. Right. You know, yeah. And But that's not the movie that we made. Right. By the way, I will say I low-key... Um, really enjoy Generations. Uh, and for very complicated reasons, I actually saw it. I'm not making this up, which makes me the most insane person sitting in this August group. Seven times opening weekend. Well, <laughs> what? I know. Well, I have, I've a, done I have like a friend. That. Come on, we, we, we go show. to see. I know, right? <laughs> we go to see all the Star Trek movies according to the, the number, its number in the series, right? So, yeah, I saw Insurrection. <laughs> what? And I'm sorry, I saw Nemesis. Good Lord, uh, nine times in one weekend. Yeah, Are you a sadist? I, I am. No, I'm a masochist, <laughs> frankly. I but I, I will say that- so you're, I, you're, so you're the one who went to see it. I was the guy. <laughs> I was the guy. You know, you're, you're welcome, first weekend box office gross. Uh, no, I, I felt like where, the, where I felt the, the gears grind just a little bit was um, I loved Picard and Kirk being together. I love the, so the odds are against us and the situation is grim. Right. I thought that was terrific. Um, I felt like there just wasn't a compelling enough reason for the two of them to be in the same movie. Like when they, when they got together at Kirk's house, that the two of them were both negotiating over whether or not they were going to be in the movie together for the rest of the film. And I think to me, you know, that's, that's, I think what kind of uh, made it the most challenging going into that, that ending. I agree with everything you're saying. Um, and uh, for the record, uh, I'm a huge James Bond fan. And I saw The Spy Who Loved Me eight times in the opening weekend. Well, there's and, nothing wrong with that. Right. That's <laughs> actually insane. That's uh, just but, a little more difficult. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, to my recollection, their meeting was kind of accidental. Mm-hmm. I mean, or in in a, in a in a concept of this nexus, which was hard, wasn't grounded, and was very abstract, and that's not what you wanted. You wanted them to be in some kind of gritty situation where they didn't necessarily like each other, or maybe they did like each other. And by the way, I don't know that those two actors really knew each other at all. I don't know. Right. Um, but you had two captains with, and you know. I don't know in their heads if they thought it was their movie or how big the egos were, mm-hmm. but they just didn't connect. Yeah, there was some there were some few, banter. But there was some banter, but it just it wasn't, wasn't Butch and Sundance. It wasn't right. happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, just, and I think it's tough. You mentioned you're such a, a big James Bond fan, and I think that. You know, people say, "Oh, you know, if uh, Sean Connery had been on a Majesty's Secret Service, it'd be the greatest James Bond movie of all time." There's certain expect, and then other people say, "You know, I don't think it would have worked. I don't think Sean could be that vulnerable." And and I guess for people like us that grew up, you know, as huge Shatner fans that we have in our uh, um, minds, right or wrong, the way Kirk would behave, the the things he would do. So when you find him in the kitchen cooking eggs, right. you know, and find him as a reluctant hero, right. a reluctant warrior who doesn't want to go off at first, you know, it's difficult to embrace. And then, of course, you have all of, uh, you know, a million people who think they can do it better rewriting the movie. So sure. suddenly Antonia is Joan Collins and City on the Edge of Forever and all this stuff. So um, yeah, yeah. it's, it's well, a which, no-win scenario yeah, in which, a sense. By the way, was a good, that's a good idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a better idea. Well, Ron Moore was a huge fan of the original series. And if anybody knew Kirk, it was Ron. Yeah. And and so I felt 
we were in very good hands with Ron in terms of how what Kirk would do. But once you're in the Nexus, it, you're in a dreamscape, right? And it just it it's hard to care, you know. Uh, well, the stakes are, are become questionable because what's real and what is reality. I mean, you were a master of doing time travel on Next Generation, and Nexus isn't quite time travel. It's something. Apart from that, and I think that becomes challenging for an audience to understand exactly what yeah. that is. It, it, I, yeah, you're right. It just it was hard. It, it, it was not. I don't think it was a great concept. How much pressure did you have from the studio to because this became an issue going, you know, in the future to have a con like villain? Because ever since Star Trek II, the studio always wanted who's our con. That was always the question they asked. Uh, in, in, in creating the character of Tolian Sauron and, and Malcolm McDowell, who was so associated with the mustache twirling baddie, and in this he's not really a mustache twirling baddie, he's sort of this tragic figure. H- how much of a challenge was it uh, sort of dealing with that note and then also creating a villain that was could be the nemesis but also felt fresh? You know, I, I have sporadic memories about how that villain was created. Um, at one point, we had modeled him after David Koresh because mm. that Waco tragedy had was was fairly recent at the time, and that he was going to have you know these followers and stuff like that. Um, you know, I do, I don't really. All I know is we decided to make him a guy who just wanted to be. With his, fa- he lost. I guess he lost his family or something mm-hmm. to the Borg or something. I, I can't even remember. <laughs> right. But uh, we gave him, you know, the 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 most I can remember uh, doing is trying to give him inter- some interesting dialogue about his obsession with time, right. and it's something I would use later again in a Voyager episode called Year of Hell, mm-hmm. where there was a char- the villain in that case, Kurtwood Smith, right? Kurtwood mm-hmm. Smith. Yeah. And a villain called Anorax, I kind of said, okay, th- this is going to be like the Soren character from Generations, but I think I can do it better mm. and understand more what he's after. In that case, it was just getting his wife back. Right. And, um, and yeah, that, that's really it. I mean, he wasn't really a good villain also because he really didn't have any personal opinion about per- Kirk or Picard, really. Right, you right. Know? That was the thing that really worked about uh, about Anorax in Year of Hell, was that that story felt very personal because it was essentially 20,000 leagues under the sea. Yes. So we had everyone um, stuck together uh, in literally the, the same boat. Um, and because of that very primal survival versus get what you want conflict, it felt like that story came alive and that character really worked. Plus, well, Kurtwood Smith, great Malcolm McDowell is also a great actor, but I feel yeah. like Kurtwood Smith was able to develop that relationship with our home characters. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, look, the best villains are ones that you can relate to. Like, and yes, that was Captain Nemo, the Anorex character, mm-hmm. was modeled after Nemo. And Nemo's one of the great literary villains because he's right about everything he right. believes. But it turns out to be a very deeply personal story for him. Uh, Soren didn't really have any of that going on. You know, Soren was not Khan. Khan's the best Trek villain of all time. You know, not because he's a genetically modified human, but because he hates Kirk and he has every reason to hate Kirk. Right. Kirk destroyed him. He just he he left. He abandoned him on this planet, and you get it. I mean, it's it's you've got to have some personal connection, and it's really the only Trek villain that I think it's one of the reasons the movie's the best movie is because you felt it, man. Yeah, and and you know, Star Trek works well when it's space opera, and it is kind of he's Ricardo's larger than life, Shatner's larger than life, and it just it works, yeah. and it works on the big screen, and that's something I want to go to that Darren said where he talked about. You know, and you said, "Oh, you know, thirty million. It was a pretty sizable budget." And he says, "You know, well, once you count in the above the line, it's not." And one of the things I felt that the movie suffered because if you, anyone who's read the original script, there's some great scenes that got lost because of budget. 
um, the Romulan attack on the space station, and there's that really fantastic um, battle on on the deflector dish, which you sort of revamp for First Contact, which is one of the great scenes in First Contact, but where they have a fight once the ship crashes and they're fighting on the ship in the wreckage of the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. It's kind of really cool and very cinematic. And for me, because Next Generation was such a cinematic show, particularly the finale, that in a movie you really got to amp the amp yeah. it up. Otherwise, what's the difference between the TV show and the features? Um, and and when the budget was cut and and you know you, things got smaller and smaller, and then the resources you have are going to things like being on the boat. Th- that hurts, you know. Ultimately, you, you know the the, the movie. Um, and uh, do you remember anything about? Maybe some of the, it's a long time, um, <laughs> uh, some of the scenes that were cut or, or, or any, you know, sort of kill your darlings. I have much more vivid memories of the making of First Contact because I was more heavily involved in producing the show. Sure. And I, I, I was there for, for everything. Um, but I remember that the the, um, the crash of the Enterprise had to keep getting scaled back. And I do remember the fight on the dish you're talking about. And you're right; we did it in the next movie. You know, I, I, if if I had to pick one example of the film falling short in terms of being a movie versus a television show, was there's this battle with Lursa and Bator, the Klingon sisters, right? And when their ship blows up, it's a it's a shot used from another movie. Right. We didn't make our own shot, and I hated that. I hated that. I'm we're like, people are going to be watching yeah. this in the theater. They know that shot, right? They're going to know that we reused this shot, and that to me is a, an example of, you know, I, I don't think it was a good decision at all. You know, and it's interesting because, look, we're looking back and, you you know, you're being very self-critical. You know, obviously it's not my favorite Star Trek movie, um, but the thing is, it was very successful when it came out. It gave birth to a franchise. I mean, it was not a given that the Next Generation cast would be able to carry a a franchise. And it very successfully sets it up. Studio was very happy. They greenlit First Contact. Oh, yeah. Uh, So I wonder if you could talk about what that was like. And you were getting offers left and right. You were uh, writing a a picture for New Line. You got Mission Impossible 2 out of it. You were doing a development deal at Paramount. I mean, so it was a success. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole trajectory my career could have taken, I think, uh, which was Mm -hmm. movie-oriented. But, and it did for a little while. Yeah, the first contact got green. I mean, that happened almost like instantly. You know, um, it might even it, we might have even started talking before the movie came out. I don't know, but it was fast. It was really fast. Um, the movie was uh, it was successful. Um, you know, Kirk and Picard were on the cover of Time magazine when being on the cover of Time magazine meant a lot more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wish I'd bought a copy. I'm sure I could find one. But, you know. I'm sure you can get it on eBay. That That's his main, you know. To me, it, we had kind of hit, that Star Trek hit an apex. At least the Star Trek that I worked on, right. my era of Star Trek, had hit it, its apex. When Generations came out, the finale of Next Gen was coming on the air. Deep Space Nine was out. Right. Um. And we were on the cover of Time magazine, and the movie was a, a smash hit. Yeah, Star Trek uh, was it, everywhere. It was kind of like never really. I think with first con personally with first contact, I that was my proudest achievement up to that point. But it no, it was a, a big success, you know, and it was fun to go to movie theaters and sit in the back and watch people's reactions, and um, it was you know it was great. It was my first cinematic experience. You know, it was pretty cool. And did you know going into the when you got the offer from Rick to do um, First Contact? Did you know it would be a Borg story? And one of my favorite stories that you always tell is, you know, you knew it would be time travel, but you didn't know where. And you were thinking about doing sort of, you know, old England, merry old England. And then Patrick was, I don't do tights. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. What a harebrained idea. Uh, 
Yeah, I th- uh, th- yeah, absolutely. We, uh, the Borg was the first idea on the table, for sure, um, and that's its own story about how that script evolved, and you know, you realize the Borg are actually not that interesting uh, <laughs> uh, uh, to sustain a movie. They're zombies, and yeah. and zombies are are, but zombies. Yes, and the invention of the Borg Queen was kind of like you need. And by the way, that's not a bad villain. You know, Khan was a good villain, but the Queen was a good villain. Yeah. Was yeah. a good villain. Um, Alice just, Krieger was great. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I was just I'm re- rereading Ghost Story. Mm. It's really good. I mean, it's a it's the movie wasn't that. Good. I was just gonna say that's a, mo- a movie that should be remade because the book is great. The Peter Strauss mm. book is great, but the movie's not very good. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. I remember not loving it, but I remember loving Alice Kri- mm-hmm. Krieger in it, and that because we needed someone who was kind of creepy, sexy. Right. And she was creepy, sexy in that movie. Um, really good actor, but. Uh, and Angelica Houston was like your first choice, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, there was there were some weird. That might have worked, but she was in the Michael Jackson Captain right. Neo thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. yeah that's, well, that, that's great. And then, obviously, uh, you know, your life with Star Trek continued. Away. You, you, we talked about, you know, obviously Voyager and Enterprise, and then you find yourself after running Salem and and Flash Forward and a bunch of shows, you're back in space now with Orville, yeah. And that's a, a whole different thing. I mean, you you know, in your career have not done a ton of comedy. So was it very liberating and exciting to suddenly find yourself, you know, not only doing, you know, being in a very familiar place with a um, science fiction space show, but also now suddenly, you know, bring this whole comedy element to it as well? Um, I was, my, my biggest concern with Orville, because I knew what Seth wanted to do. He, um, and it's really, um, its ethos is, it, it's its own thing now, but Next Generation was kind of the vibe we wanted, a, a ship that you wanted to be on, a ship that was was pleasantly lit and, and, and fun and, had, and has windows. Right. Um, right. And, uh, but I hadn't done that kind of storytelling in a while, and I, and I was like, can I, is this still gonna be my bag and I have to tell you it's great and it's a kind of storytelling that's not really on television television right now mm-hmm. and it's optimistic and I'm you know I miss that you know when you work on a show say the, the show I, I worked on for like three years 24 you know it does affect you if if every single day you're you're dealing with really dark subject matter and in some cases torture it it kind of it does affect you and working on a sunny optimistic show is a ton of fun the comedy because it's character based mm-hmm. it's not like we're writing jokes right, right. sure um isn't is just fun it is what you know what it's that it's such an interesting experiment because the audience was expecting Family Guy in space, and what they're getting is more serious science fiction right. with a little comedy, character comedy. What's what surprised me was how the characters are accepted. Like I've heard, oh, it's it's Star Trek, but the characters are are more r- relatable and down to earth. I was afraid they were too broad, mm. but now we're just it's all character based. So, right. yeah. but the and the storytelling is pure. It's pure. You know, it's heavily influenced by the way Star Trek told stories and other things. Sure. sure. You know. And I love the way that you guys have been liberated. I mean, obviously, we've had David on the show, too, David Goodman, and um, our, our president, but yes. uh, Mr. President. <laughs> but he, uh, uh, you know, that you guys, you know, felt comfortable enough uh, with the characters. I mean, not only you do really th- that classic allegory and metaphor that Star Trek did so well and has has been handled so you know in a really interesting way, but I think the show has gotten comfortable with doing science fiction. Where at first it seemed hedge its bets with more sort of uh, outrageous comedy, more that what says stock and trade. And as it went on, it became it sort of jettisoned some of the more over the top comedy, and it's become more. And the show's only gotten better and better as a result of yeah. that. I mean, second season was terrific, and that two-parter identity is just really fantastic. Yeah, that, the identity two-parter, I re- remember 
talking to Seth, and we were we knew it would be a seminal mo- seminal moment in the show, for better or worse. Either people were going to love it because it was such a risky thing to do with a character, you know, with that character, mm-hmm. Isaac character, yep. or they're gonna hate it and say this is too this is too r- radical. Like, you, you, and uh, fortunately, they liked it. And you're right. The there was the early episodes are a little more broad, but you know, we it certainly wasn't the show that was promoted by Fox, (laughs) because I think it wasn't the show that they were expecting. It's also probably not completely the show that they were wanting at the time. But uh, we were just so you know, it got critically panned, and it was depressing for a moment until it aired, and we were watching. We were just. Going back to social media, as the shows literally as the first episodes right. airing, yeah. right. we're looking at social media and people are liking it. Right, the waves of reaction from the way the, the and 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 we literally were like, okay, we're going to be all right. They don't give a shit what the critics are saying. Right. And at that time, thirty-eight percent critics, maybe, and then like a ninety-eight percent fan right. thing you know it's it and I, that it does matter i mean those numbers mm-hmm, matter people mm-hmm. look at those numbers today um so we were really happy that they embraced the science fiction well and premise pilots are notoriously difficult to do i mean you don't have 50 years of history you're reinventing you're creating a whole sci-fi universe in 43 minutes you know and and so i mean there's a lot stacked I- I- against you i mean i look if i was doing my favorite orville episodes it probably wouldn't be the pilot but at the same time you know it sets up this really great universe in you know 43 minutes and that's i mean that's an amazing accomplishment Seth's, you know i think seth is a you know he's a brilliant writer and this is what i'm not speaking for him this is my opinion i think this is what he has been waiting to do his whole career Mm -hmm. i think he has found a way to do his science fiction show right. and it's a you know really a, a dream come true for him and well it's such a love letter to star trek but at the same time it's very fresh and uh, you know i've heard it referred to and i don't think that this is a disparaging comment i actually think it's, it's, it's very flattering it's just, it's the most expensive fan film ever made yeah. in a sense because it's a love letter to the original star trek but it has completely sort of defined its own universe and is just super fun and different than any other show and there's a reason that it's lasted three years when so many of these cult science fiction shows have gone by the wayside after a year yeah and we're writing the th- we're uh in the writing the early episodes of season three right now and it's, it's just it's just a kind of t- storytelling a, a story with a beginning middle and end right. and um that i i really missed i really missed it and you've always said that, and and it's interesting because as TV embraces dark and serialized and all, this, like this is such a throwback. But it's sort of like the audience is begging for that, right. but nobody wants to a- accept that that's what the audience wants because people only want their Emmys, you know. And it, it's 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 crazy because how many shows out there are going to get nominated for Emmys? It's like just make a good show that people like and watch, and it, it's I don't get it. Well, by the way, back to your point about Next Generation, people may or may not know that in its final season Next Generation was nominated for an Emmy for Best Dramatic mm-hmm. show, uh, show which was unheard of for a syndicated a syndicated show right um, so it did it it did right toward the end seem to get some respect right. from within the community but science fiction and horror yeah. they still struggle I mean there's so much of it now you know, and Game of Thrones is, I guess, probably the biggest breakout show. Right. To, to um, but even that, look how the fans have turned on it. I haven't watched the finale, so no spoilers. But the um, it, it's so interesting to see how people just love that they live for the show, yeah. and then all of a sudden they do something that, pe- and they, they just turn on it yeah. Yeah. on a dime, and the hate and the hey, vitriol. Man, I've been there. <laughs> I've been there. I'm just like, yeah, it's fans can get very provincial. About certain things. I mean, especially over a long enough span of time, fans, you know, they they come up with their pet theories. The hive mind decides how things are going to work and what things are. And I think one of the challenges that that we have as writers is um, 
being true to what we know the show to be and who we know the characters to be and the chances we want to take versus there are things that the fans just want to see. And there's always that small group that flips out, right, and decides that you're evil. Yeah. You know, because you don't always deliver exactly what they want. Well, and, but, but I, but the relationship we have with the fans has changed. Absolutely. And, we in that we have a relationship with mm-hmm. the fans it's not just the kind of fringe people who used to write letters remember letters mm-hmm. oh, yeah. um we go to comic con i occasionally do a star trek convention because i want to s- interact with the fans like right. and you can't ignore what they're saying mm-hmm. as your show is airing and i think it's important to to look at what they're saying about your show and let them be part of the you know the experience and they have to be you know and I'm not saying you if you listen to everybody you'd end up with nothing but I you know I didn't see the finale either um, I think the plastic garbage the, the water bottle the Starbucks the, cup, the cup, yeah. I I my my, my theory is it was on purpose I, I i don't know how it's not i i agree with you, you know i think i uh, agree with you there's some kind of i don't but uh, i think there's some sleight of hand going on there something for pr I, you to don't know deflect it you don't miss you just don't miss things no you, know, no, you no. guys know that not at this not, not too many eyes are <laughs> no. freaking way uh, <laughs> i but, mean no yeah, one in post no one yeah it's you know and and by the way there's a podcast that we're doing right now that is a testament to the fans and the fans that have made genre entertainment so huge mm-hmm. and accept a, a mainstream, we so we have a relationship that we have to maintain with them. I mean, they're yeah. they're the ones watching. Sure. And we said, if uh, you know, there were no fans to listen to this, we'd be doing this over drinks instead of behind yeah, microphones, so, well which said. would probably <laughs> we have both? probably be preferable. <laughs> um, but I, I want to ask you before we wrap things up. You know, you've gone on, and I know it's something ever since you were in film school that you wanted to direct, and of course now you, you're having a very very successful run, not only with the Orville but uh, uh, Cosmos, which is uh, uh, premiering the second season this summer. Um, what's that been for, for you? You've done a beautiful job on on on, on these episodes, oh, and appreciate it. It's a visual signature that you know you brought, and that's tough in television. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and by the way, just for the record, Cosmos the air date hasn't been. Oh, it hasn't. Okay, it th- hasn't been. Okay, it won't be this summer. Um, it, I'm, I don't have the air date yet, mm. but my, it. But it's coming in the future. It's coming in the near future. Um, you know, we'll all I'm, spend the rest of our lives. Uh, <laughs> but it's you know it's done. We, it's in the can, and you know with the. The whole Disney Fox sure, sure. stuff going on, it's kind of been delayed. But a, uh, an announcement will be made soon about when it's premiering. Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to direct, and I could have directed Star Trek very easily when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. But I always told myself I didn't have time because I was busy writing the show. And, and time is the fire in r- which you burn. And time is the fire <laughs> in which we burn. I can't remember where that's from, but I, I don't think I made that up. Um, time is a predator, I think I made up. Right. Time is far in which we burn. Stalking you. Yeah. And love but, is a battlefield. Love is a battlefield. <laughs> um, but uh, what was I saying? Were well, you talking about directing? And oh, I, I could directing. have directed on Star Trek, but you I, chose I, not I, to. I think I was just afraid that I didn't wouldn't know what I was doing. Sure. But it's um, it's been great. I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, I've got, you know, in, I'm hoping soon uh, that I can announce that uh, this Books of Blood project I've been working oh, on. Oh, fantastic. Um, you know, knock Clyde on wood. Barker, who it, you've always been a huge yeah, fan of. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm a horror fan, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been working with Clive Barker on a Books of Blood adaptation that we'll, we'll be announcing soon. Like, that sounds but, awesome. Yeah. And I'll be directing that. But, um, yeah. That's fantastic. Well, you know, look, your your corner of the Star Trek universe went on for a very long time. And uh, hopefully it's something we can revisit because, um, obviously, you know, there's Voyager, there's Enterprise, there's First Contact. Um, there's so much. But on the 25th anniversary, it's great to have you come in and talk now, about 20, what What is 
how do you watch the the movie these days? Like generations. Yeah, huh? I mean, th- there really aren't DVDs. I have it, I have it right here on my iPad. I you have it on your <laughs> iPad. I mean, it's, where where do you find if someone listening to this? Hasn't seen the movie and they want to watch it. It's on Netflix. I'd swear it's on Netflix right now. But I don't encourage streaming. I think they should download it from iTunes or whatever version of the iTunes store that is now going to be in existence. You know, I believe in owning content. You can get the Blu-ray on 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 um, Mm -hmm. on on Amazon. It's been repackaged a thousand times. Uh, It's the you know whatever they call it. Get the one with the commentary I did with Ron Moore. Yeah, I, I just remember it was a. It was almost like we were able to finally let out all, years. It was therapeutic. All the, all it, the was a, it was <laughs> yeah. therapeutic. And I remember thinking, this is probably going to be really interesting to listen to. And then I remember doing the first contact commentary thinking, this is really boring. Because <laughs> it turned out good. Right, right. There was really nothing to talk about. Right. So get the if, if if you get the Blu-ray, make sure it's the one with the commentary. It was it's super, amazingly entertaining and and super candid, and that's yeah. a testament to both of you. And you know, both you and Ron have been extremely you know honest, you know about. And I think it's uh, you know I think it's great. You know, you can look back and just sort of be honest because in, in a world dominated by EPK and, and hyperbole, where everything is the best thing ever, and we love each other, and all the actors love each other, and you know, it's nice when people are, can be honest or at least. You know, in retrospect, look at things and 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 have some kind of perspective well, I mean, on it. But you know, are there things I can't talk, that I don't talk about out of respect for privacy? And uh, of course, but I spent fifteen years, my most of my a uh, huge chunk of my adult life, the first phase of my adult life, right. you know, from 20, age twenty five to forty, was. You know, that was my life. Star Trek sure. was everything. Yeah. So if I can't talk about it and talk about it honestly, there's this, you know, it's not a blind spot in my life. It's uh, it's still to this, to this, it's always going to be the thing I'm known for, for, if I'm known for anything. You know, it's the, the thing people want to talk about, you know, and I, 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 I like talking about it. Yeah, no, look, that's great. Well, we, we appreciate you coming on and talking about it with us. It's always good to see you, sir. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I want to thank uh, Brandon and Ashley for joining us to talk about Generations. As I said, we'll have to, hopefully, uh, you'll join us again because there's there's so much more to talk about. And you're always uh, such a great, uh, you know, raconteur when it comes to talking about your tenure with the franchise. Um, and maybe we can find ways to bash First Contact for you. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> there are plenty of things that are wrong with that movie. But, but it's wildly entertaining. And uh, that's a whole other conversation. Does it have an anniversary coming up? Eventually. Well, everything has an anniversary <laughs> yeah. coming up. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, would have it, that would have a 25th anniversary soon, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that's right. So we'll, we'll, have to, well, we'll have to have Brandon back before the 25th anniversary of First Contact. And the line must be drawn there and, and no, no further. further. <laughs> that's right. Well, look, thank you for uh, joining us for Inglorious Trexperts. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcast, like the 430 Movie, every Friday, in which a group of writer and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies. Also this summer on The CW, don't forget to check out the second season of Dean Devlin's fantasy series, The Outpost, and the new sci-fi action-adventure series from creator, executive producer Mark A. Altman, Pandora. Hey, that's me. Uh, also, <laughs> look for Best Movies Never Made every Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. I love that show. What is that? Uh, that is a fantastic show. So it's uh, the producer of Jodorowsky's Dune, Stephen Scarlatta yeah. and Josh Miller, who wrote yeah, great, um, great uh, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, and they... Every week, they talk to a filmmaker about the one that got away, the movie that never got made. So they, Fred, Fred Decker was on to talk about Johnny Quest and uh, his Godzilla 3D that he never did um, uh, back in the 80s. Then last week, was uh, they did a thing on ET2 and Night, uh, you know, night Terrors. Uh, the, the, and and um, they're doing this. You were on it recently, Ashley, talking right. about the unmade Spider-Man movies the, from Canon Films to Cameron. Mm-hmm. And and on and that's it's four a great parts. four parts, but fantastic! It's so inter- I love that way, show. That is that is right up my alley. Oh, I, you should check it out. It's did great. you see the Island of Doctor Moreau picture? Oh mm-hmm. yeah, with Richard Stanley which is, hiding. Which is which is oh he's making he, he's back in action. Did you know that? I did not. Oh, What's he's he doing? Uh, Color out of space. Holy really? Crap. Oh, fantastic! HP, HP doing Lovecraft. Lovecraft. Yeah, he's back doing another movie. Um, that is such. 
I will listen to that. I oh, it's, love it. It's really good, too. I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the other. Adam Rifkin doing Return to the Planet of the Apes. Talks about Return to the wow. Planet of the Apes and his He-Man and the Master of the Universe. I, I, you know, it's funny because, you know, I have to listen to all these shows just to, to sign off. Some of them are torture. But uh, <laughs> but best movies never made. I, have me on Have me on some time to talk about the Freddy versus Jason oh. script that Ron Moore and I wrote. Oh, they, should, they did Freddy versus Jason versus... Um, Ash, which was a really good episode too. But they should have you should absolutely have you on. You could talk about Area Fifty One too, because weren't you doing yeah. the video game adaptation yeah, of Area Fifty One? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll definitely um, uh, if if you're cool with that, that'd be awesome. I think that would be a great show. A new episode uh, drops every Monday night. A new episode. You drops, yeah, right, thank you. <laughs> and also check out the new Star Wars podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, which uh, will be debuting every Thursday night. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and you can follow us at Inglorious Trek on Twitter and Glorious Trexperts on Instagram. Very special thanks to Bill Ritter. Is he wearing the shirt today? No, he's not. He's, oh, oh, he yes. is. Inglorious Trexpert uh, uh, logo wear, which is available um, at the ingloriousTrek.com. And uh, Natalie, uh, our producer, thank you for being here and uh, making the show go so smoothly until I started talking. And uh, until next <laughs> Saturday, keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.